Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to this joint USF and Commonwealth Club event uh, featuring Valerie Biden-Owens. Thank you for the uh, possibility for us to live stream this uh, to folks across the city and beyond and podcast it later so that folks around the country and beyond will have a chance to also be present for this amazing conversation. This is a very special conversation with Valerie Biden-Owens. My name is Paul Fitzgerald. I'm the president here at the University of San Francisco. Uh, Thank you. On behalf of our amazingly diverse, wonderfully brilliant students, staff, and faculty, it's my pleasure to welcome members of the Board of Trustees, members of advisory boards, faculty, uh, friends of the university, and leaders of the city of San Francisco. We're honored to welcome Valerie Biden-Owens back to the USF campus. Uh, In a minute, I'll tell you why I say back. Uh, She is the first woman in US history to have run a presidential campaign, that of her older brother, Joey, uh, Joseph R. Biden Jr. She also led his seven straight Senate campaigns and Uh, I think ran his successful senior year high school uh, run for student body president. Um, She's chair of the Biden Institute at the University of Delaware and author of this amazing uh, memoir that I hope you've all had a chance to read, Growing Up Biden. Uh, You'll hear a lot more about that during the conversation this evening. Um, I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Gloria Duffy, president Uh, and CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California. Uh, She is a longtime friend of the university and of me, a community partner, recipient of a 2006 uh, Doctor of uh, Humane Letters Honoris Causa from the University of San Francisco. Uh, As we begin, I want to be sure uh, that you know that this evening's event is the result of a collaborative and ongoing work between uh, people and organizations who share a passionate commitment to public service, to mentoring young people, and to awaken in them the vocation of public service. And for the public servants who are here present, thank you for being examples of what it is to stand up and lead uh, our great city. So uh, this event is being held in partnership, as I say, with the Commonwealth Club of California the oldest and largest public affairs forum in the United States. Another principal partner is the Biden Institute at the University of Delaware. The Biden Institute works to educate and empower the next generation of leaders by convening students, scholars, activists, policymakers, government officials, and business and nonprofit leaders from a diverse range of disciplines, political ideologies, and backgrounds to advance public policy conversations on issues of critical importance facing our nation, our region, and our world. Uh, Thank you, Valerie Biden-Owens, for launching launching an issues, for launching this great conversation and partnership between the University of San Francisco and the Biden Institute, the McCarthy Center for Public Service and the Common Good, here at USF, and the Biden Institute have partnered now for two summers, the first one virtually, the second one in person, to bring together uh, social equity interns, social equity scholars uh, from both universities, uh, not only to do direct work with young people uh, to prevent summer reading loss, but also to begin to do the critical analysis of the social structures that either help young people to succeed or hold young people back based on factors well beyond their control, but not beyond ours. So, um, and then another critical partner in this conversation is the YMCA here in San Francisco. This summer, in partnership with the Biden Institute and the McCarthy Center, students from USF and the University of Delaware were placed in YMCA's Power Scholars Academy, where over the course of seven weeks during the summer, they gained a deeper understanding of how public programs and policies can positively impact the needs of a community's students, young people, and their families. Now, I am delighted 
to introduce my dear friend, Dr. Chuck Collins, 2018 recipient of a USF Honorary Doctorate and President Emeritus of the YMCA here in San Francisco and a special advisor to the Secretary General of the World Alliance of YMCAs. Uh, Chuck will introduce our speakers. Uh, Chuck worked behind the scenes, as, as I said, with Valerie Biden-Owens and Derek Brown, Senior Director of the Leo T. McCarthy Center here at USF, to design, launch, and guide our Equity Scholars Partnership with the Biden Institute. Dr. Collins. Well, good afternoon. Uh, this is a sellout crowd, and I am really pleased that everyone showed up this afternoon. It's such a great honor to see you here, but let me start first by acknowledging that we're on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded nor lost nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all of the peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community by affirming their sovereign rights as First People. May we be committed to supporting the contemporary and traditional evolution of the American Indian community. As Father Paul welcomed us, we have a special opportunity to hear Valerie Biden-Owens and Gloria Duffy in conversation. Valerie's memoir is about family, faith, and our duties to each other. And through this lens, we can understand the values, the histories, and the events that shaped those who grew up Biden. I told Sebastian Ginelli the other day that I hope never, ever, to feel the wrath of Valerie. But more to the point of this book, I hope even more that the forces that shaped her life will reflect on a path forward for America and the world. I met Val four years ago at Sissy Swig's home for a small gathering of then former Vice President Joe Biden. Soon thereafter, Valerie was back in town and together with Kathy McLaughlin, we had lunch at one market to discuss the nascent Biden Institute. One of the outcomes of that meeting was our determination to do something about the looming equity gap facing so many children and so many young people in America. And as Father Paul was saying, from this, the Equity Interns program was hatched. And now going into its third year in partnership with the Biden Institute the University of Delaware, the Leo T. McCarthy Center here at USF, and the YMCA of San Francisco's Power Scholars were reaching, to date, thousands of students. But not only that, as Father Paul was saying, it's influencing the interns, those young people that are going into the program to understand this gap and what lies in there, and what better place to really begin that path towards either vocation or avocation and to develop that mindset also within the families of the scholars, their families, and their communities. And so what I would like, this is a moment that I would just like for everyone who has been involved in this program, would you just stand for a second so that we can acknowledge you? Please. And so what you're seeing you know, is, is the outline, the footprints of a dream. And so thank you for that. As a member of the Board of Governors of the Commonwealth Club, bringing Gloria Duffy into this conversation joins two fearless leaders to discuss family, faith, and our shared responsibilities. Gloria's background across many sectors draws from a deep reservoir of experience. The recent death of Mikhail Gorbachev highlights the work she did in leading the world in nuclear disarmament and dismantling weapons of mass destruction in the former Soviet Union. Her skills of negotiation 
have made this world safer. With equal diplomacy, she now leads the Commonwealth Club, which, as Father Paul was saying, since 1903 has been America's oldest forum promoting civil discussion. And so it's my pleasure to bring into this conversation here in Xavier Auditorium at USF and to the broad national and global audience, Valerie Biden-Owens and Dr. Gloria Duffy. Thank you. Wow. Did anybody tell you that I'm a New York Times bestseller? <laughs> Just thought I'd say it. They're here. And anybody here that has a cell phone, they can just call my brother and tell him I'm up here. <laughs> well, hi, everyone. Thank you, Father Paul, for that gracious welcome. Thank you, Chuck, for that warm introduction. It's good friends and partnerships like tonight's that are most fulfilling for the Commonwealth Club, and we're so glad to be included here with our friends from USF. I'm Gloria Duffy, as uh, Chuck mentioned, uh, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club, and I'm so pleased to be the moderator of tonight's conversation with Valerie Biden-Owens. Warm welcome to club members, USF students, friends of USF, and the others that are with us here uh, this evening. Ms. Biden-Owens is definitely a woman who needs no introduction, but I just wanted to mention a few important points. She is the first woman in history to have run a presidential campaign, that of her brother, Joseph R. Biden, Jr. She also managed the campaigns leading to his seven straight U.S. Senate victories and has been his principal surrogate and on the campaign trail. She is chair of the Biden Institute at the University of Delaware and a partner at Owens Patrick Leadership Seminars. She sits on the advisory board of the Bo Biden Foundation for the Protection of Children. For 20 years, when she was not managing or advising President Biden's campaigns, she served as executive vice president of Joe Slade White & Company, a media consulting firm. She's worked extensively with Women's Campaign International, teaching women how to organize and develop communication and political skills. She has also served on the National Board of the Women's Leadership Forum of the, National, of the Democratic National Committee and for 35 years on the Board of the Ministry of Caring. She is a former high school social studies teacher many, many years ago, a graduate of the University of Delaware, and she was a resident fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics. Most importantly for us tonight, she is the author of the new book, Growing Up Biden a story of family, faith, and responsibility, the subjects that we will discuss with her this evening. You've already given her a warm welcome, but please, once again, welcome Valerie Biden. Thanks, Father. Thanks, Chuck. Maureen, thank you. Now, let's get started. Okay. Tell us, why did you write this wonderful memoir, Growing Up Biden? Well, I never started out um, to write a book. What I write and have written for years uh, are vignettes. I'm a storyteller. And the way that, it, you know, when people have different emotions, happy or sad, churning, some people go out and run five miles or play the piano or do a great artwork, I write. So I just go up and sit down and whatever the emotion is from that I feel for myself or that I feel for my associate, whoever I'm with, I write. And my children, uh, I have three children, uh, Missy, Cuff, and Casey, boy, girl, boy. Is that right? Girl, boy. <laughs> I know my kids. I got it. <laughs> it's a girl, boy, girl. Uh, and they said, Mom, why'd you, why don't you put these stories in a book? And You've heard this expression before, my Biden word of honor. I said, who cares, you know, that I rode on the bicycle with Joe, Uncle Joe. I mean, who cares? And they said, we care. Write it down for us and write it down for your grandchildren. So I did. And uh, the hard part was um, not the writing. 
because that just came. But it was putting it together, like what, which kid do you like better or what story to put in? And I find that I'm a, uh, to the extent that I'm good at one thing, it's a, I'm a better writer than an editor. So I wrote it for myself, no, no grand scheme. I wrote it for my, myself and my kids. And from this book, what do you hope readers will take away? At the risk of being a wise guy, uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't care. What, I mean, I, I didn't, there's no moral to my story of what I want you. I'm writing this book so that you'll understand this. For me as an author, the biggest compliment for me would be when you put the book down and you said, God, she gets me. That's my mom. That's my dad. Because I grew up in, uh, I have three brothers, and we grew up in a middle-class American family, mid-20th century, Irish Catholic background. And my family, uh, you know, I bet is very much like yours, many of yours here in the audience and people who are listening. I mean, sure, my brother's president, that makes it a little bit different. But, you know, the, the fabric... The, the, the threads that weave the concept of family together, which are uh, compassion and commitment and love and heartbreak and disappointment and loss, they're the same threads that I bet run through all of your families. It's just a little bit different that ours are exposed because my brother's a public figure. So I think that the if there's any moral to the story, which I didn't set out to write a moral to a story, but it's that there's a lot more that we have in common than we don't. And the, the theme, I guess it's, you know, it's empathy, which is sorely being, it's, there's a vacuum, I think, at this point in our, in our country of empathy. And, and empathy is just a fancy word of saying feeling, not as in, obviously, to touch the fabric, but it, in absorbing. And to be able to say, gee, God, I, 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 know, I know what that feels like. And when you do that, it's so much easier to try and come together. But again, I don't want to make myself any, there's no holier than thou or... I'm, you know, moralistic story. It's a story about family, faith, and commitment. It's a story about mom and dad. You know, I was... Did I answer that? Yeah, I think so. We'll get back to some of that as well. I was struck by how close your family was through a lot of ups and downs, financial ups and downs and so on, and how the extended family really pulled together. Um, So a main theme was how close the Biden family is and was, how the values of family, faith, responsibility instilled in you and your brothers as children carried through to your work in adulthood. So how did that somewhat unique family background with all of that love and cooperation move forward into your work and your siblings' work in adulthood? I think it was part of our DNA. It was mom and dad. Uh, Mom and dad told me and my three brothers that we were a gift to one another, and we believed them. And we had one job, and this was mom. Dad was a man of few words, but when he spoke, we all listened. But mom was the one, you know, who was always yakking at us for something. But what mom said to us is that um, there is nothing, nothing closer than brothers and sisters, even fathers and, and, and mothers and fathers and children. Brothers and sisters are the same they're the closest that you come. And what you, what you kids have to do is you have to take care of one another. You have to have each other's back. And really and truly, she said, when, we, when you walk out that door, you close the door behind you, you just have to remember that you're Bidens. And not Bidens like your Kennedys or your Rockefellers or Whitney's or whatever fam- famous name, but you're Bidens and you're four little kids who have each other's back. And God forbid if one of us would ever turn on the other. I mean, that's when all hell would have broken loose in in our house. So uh, we knew, I mean, little kids, on our little shoulders, we knew the responsibility was to 
not to disappoint our mother and father. And so that carried through Joe's much more, the natural extension was his going into public service. And that doesn't make him good or bad. That just makes who he is. I mean, he's, he is a public servant. There's no daylight between the private man and the public servant. I mean, I have tried to show... I used to... The, my friend today has my big handbag with her. And when I campaigned with Joe, I used to put masking tape in it. But I never got to him close soon enough to put the masking tape over his mouth. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, Joe, don't say it. Because he is... You see what you get. And... and uh, but I'm now being abiding and continuing talking when you have other things to say. So uh, I will move on. Did I, again, You're, corral me? I will. Okay. I will. So a, f- a couple of childhood memories, favorite childhood memories of growing up Biden. What would those be? Well, there, there are two. Uh, well, there's a, there are a lot. I think that the one that speaks to the perhaps to this audience, is the, is the relationship with me and my brother Joe. And then I have three other brothers, and, and I, I like to do a similar story. But with Joe, who is my big brother, and uh, it used to be 20 years ago that he was six years older. Now, since the son of a gun exposed me in his books, it's only three years difference between the two of us. <laughs> but, um, okay, so we live in Scranton. My brother Joe was born in Scranton. I was born in Boston. My parents had moved back. Long story short, five, I'm five years old, and we're at my grandparents' house in, on North Washington Avenue. My best girlfriend lived across the street. Her name was Mary McGee. And when in the old days, when you went to first grade, uh, again, uh, I was five. I, you didn't go to pre-K, pre-KK, pre-first, first. You went right into first grade, into the jaws of the nuns. <laughs> Whoa. You know, that was mighty powerful. And I, so I went to the Catholic girls school. My friend Mary McGee went to the public school. She had a birthday party. She was turning six. So I, you know, got all dressed up and mom watches me cross the street. I go to Mary McGee's house. And there was a whole room of 12, 15 little girls that I didn't know. And we women have not always been, starts when we're little kids, we've not always been our sister's keeper, you know. I was the odd man out, so to speak, and, you know, they, they didn't care. They all knew each other, and I didn't know anybody. So I said to Mrs. McGee, I want to go home. And she said, oh, no, Valerie, stay. And I said, no, I want my brother. I, I want to go home. So Mrs. McGee calls my mother. My mother runs up to the sandlot, not organized baseball, but where we used to play the field. She gets Joey, brings him home, you know, cleans behind his ears, puts on a sport coat, and he walks over and knocks on the room and says, Mrs. McGee, I'm Joey Biden. She said, I know who you are. Come on in. And he stayed with me for the whole birthday party. He played pin the tail on the donkey, musical chairs, whatever it was. And he was just quiet there. And when we walked out, he said, thank you, Mrs. McGee. And we walked out the door, and I said, oh, Joey, thank you for coming. And he said, no, thanks for inviting me, Val. I had a great time. <laughs> he was kind. He never took my face. He never took my pride. He said, no, thank you. It was really nice of you. The other side, we couldn't fight outside the family. I mean, outside the door, but we we're normal kids. So we had, you know, sibling rivalries. And so we had orchestrated family fights that we took place in the house, which were water balloons, you know, midnight attacks and my brother Jimmy, he was the middle one. Jimmy and I are way smarter than Joe and Frank, you know. I mean, or at least we were a lot more clever, you know. Joe would never said, Mom, can you believe what she did to me? <laughs> uh, so one night that, uh, funny, Joe did something that was, to me, I thought was a grave offense, and it was enough. So I called Jimmy Biden, and I said, this is war. Well, I don't even remember what it was, but we're going to take him down. And Jimmy said, yeah. So we get on our bikes. We ride up to the local mart, which was two mart, you know, strip, strip mall. And there's a pet shop in there. And in the pet shop, there is a big glass cage. And they have snakes in there. And we went over and I said, and Jimmy was, always had money because he had a paper route or something. And, and uh, I said, Jimmy, that, that's the one. 
and it surely was like this, and it surely had to be slimy. And we get the snake, put it in the box with air holes in it, because so, we were humane. We wanted the snake to breathe at least we get home, and we put it. We went to bed, three bedrooms. Boys are in a double double bunk beds, and they're in the middle room. Mom and dad, and since I'm the only girl, I have my own room. I'm the princess, as well it should have been. And we wait till the lights go out. Jimmy Biden takes the snake, opens the lid, and puts it at the bottom of Joe's bed. Joe gets into bed, and it's like night, you know, like the partridge from night, mom, night, dad, you know. And then all of a sudden. Ah, the scream. The snake found its nice way up Joe's leg. And Jimmy Biden uh, fell out of the top bunk laughing. Frankie Biden, who was in there, started to cry. And I said, game, set, match. We won. So that's the, the, they're the kind of stories that we were normal and, uh, you know, had those kinds of fights. But they're two memories of humor and joy and sharing and and being there, there's an expression, it, if you have to ask, it's too late. Mm-hmm. So that's how we tried. Mm-hmm. Again, we're normal families. We're not, you know, and when I talk about my brother, he doesn't walk on water. You know, I don't, he's good enough that I don't have to try and convince you that he's great. And it's the same with our family. There's a lot of good and bad. But like, you know, the question is when you get knocked down, you just got to get back up. So your brother calls you his best friend. How did you, out of this family environment, several kids and so on, how did you and he get to be best friends? Well, he was my big brother. And from the time I remember opening my eyes, and again, this is not a Bidenism. There's no exaggeration. There's no malarkey. He grabbed my hand and he said, come on, buddy. He said, let's go. We got things to do, places to go and people to see. And he took me with him every place. And when his friend said, why did you bring a girl? He said, she's not a girl. She's my sister. You know? And he told me, again, gospel truth, that whatever he could do, he said, you can do it better. He said, you're smarter than I am. You're a nicer person than I am. You're whatever it was. And he gave me confidence to, I thought that I owed it to him. And then to myself, to try and be the little girl or the big girl that he thought I was or was capable of being. So I, you know, my little legs pumped just as hard to keep up with them and the boys. And, uh, but he said, you could do it. And he said, I could do it. And I, you know, and I believed. I said, well, okay. Like 29, he's running for the Senate. And the youngest guy, he was too young when we were elected in 1972 to serve. He had to wait for his birthday. And I'm the camp. He's the first senator that he and I ever met. And uh, he's 29 and I'm 20. uh, What's that make me? 26. And um, I said, I don't know how to be a campaign manager. And then I thought about it. I said, oh, you don't know how to be a senator. So if you could be one at 29, (laughs) I sure could be a campaign manager at 26. So that's uh, we've since we it's about trust. And I mean, he. We were together all the time and all with my, not just Joe, but with my, again, with my three brothers. I don't think there's anything that any one of us has done to deliberately hurt the other. Now, have we? Because we've made a mistake or we've been dumb or we've hurt somebody's feelings. We used to have family. Do you want me to stop? Do you have an No, feel please. We had, this is Joe's idea, we had what was called family meetings. And when anything happened, when one of the four siblings, we were upset or mad, uh, we weren't upset at seven, we were mad, or we were 10 years old. And one of us could call a family meeting, and our parents never interfered. We'd go into Joe, the bunk room, shut the door, and say, okay, what's the problem? I said, Joe, I mean, I am so mad at you. You know, in, do you know in, in, in front of Tom, do you know what you said? And one of us would say, oh, my gosh, I did? I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Or, oh, what an idiot I am. And we would get the hurt out, say, I, and we were generally sorry because, I mean, we loved each other. Why would you do that? Uh, except you were dumb and you were a kid and you made a mistake. And it was over. And we would 
then go on, and I forgot what the question was, but I know it was profound, as a profound answer, no doubt. I don't, did, would I answer whatever question Absolutely. it was? So the campaign management business is pretty rough and tumble. And you were the first woman to run a presidential campaign and so on. I understood from your book that Joe's advocacy extended to helping you in that role. At one point you said he pulled up a chair for you at meetings where other people didn't think a woman should be at the table. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how you dealt with the attitudes, how Joe supported you? Yeah. Well, I had it, again, uh, I had it a lot easier than most women because, I mean, I was told I'm the first. But, you know, my big brother sat at the head of the table. So, you know, he pulled, he literally pulled up a chair where a lot of women, you know, they have to crawl up that ladder to get there. And again, at that time when I was, I said rather flippantly that, you know, we women are not our sister's keeper. Uh, and especially in the years 70s and 80s, if you got in that high place, you kept it. You pulled the ladder up, said it's mine. Now you work it and you figure out how to get it. But Joe pulled up the chair and said, well, this is my sister. She speaks for me. If she says it, just assume I said it and go, you know, go and um, go for it. And so that was fine until he walked out of the room. <laughs> and there most, most people, they were all men. There were no, again, somebody could find some woman someplace. But for the purposes of our discussion, there were no other women campaign managers. There were few women journalists. There were no media, women media consultants. There were no women, you know, they didn't. Women answered the phone and opened up and shut headquarters. So I had to. When he left, I had to prove myself. But I was raised with men, and I trusted men, and I dealt with them as equal because I didn't know any better. I mean, I was equal to my brothers, so there was not. Um, and and every once in a while, there was a non-believer and. I had to pull my own weight and pull some muscle, but other than Joe's pulling you up a chair at the table, personally, what made you successful as a campaign manager? Uh, I knew what, because I had a PhD in Joe Biden. It wasn't that I was had a PhD in political science or how to manage a campaign. Um, I knew campaigns were about the voter, not about the candidate. The candidate was simply a vehicle. One of the bicycles, there's three or four different types of bicycles you could ride to get where you want. Joe was one type of the bicycle. And the important thing was to present Joe authentically uh, for him to listen to what you had to say, for him to tell you what his views were and say, hmm, that's a good idea or, or no. i, I I don't see that. Let's have to figure out how to do something. And I, uh, I spoke his language. See, what made me a good campaign manager, again, was not my brilliance, and I'm not dumbing myself down. I'm a smart woman. But it was my understanding that 99% of the time that Joe and I came to the same conclusion. So he, it was with complete trust. So Joe could go out and do what only he could do, be the best candidate and meet the people. And he never had to worry about what happened back at the ranch. There was no piece of literature. There was no ad. There was no anything, volunteer work, that went out that I didn't actually sign off on. And if I signed off on it, he didn't have to worry about it. And he could do. So that's what what made me a good campaign manager. I could take all that stuff off of Joe that he didn't ever have to be in headquarters, and he knew it would be, whether it's the right way or the wrong way, it would be our way, it would be the Biden way, and it would be a truthful way. Again, not a pious truth, but truthful to the Biden style. And you liked it or you didn't like that. So let's go back to the Biden way, uh, since you brought it up again. Faith, family, responsibility. We've talked a bit about family, how about the faith part? What, what roots in faith does the Biden way have? Well, we 
our, our culture is an Irish Catholic. I, I think being a Catholic, for me, being a Catholic is, uh, is as much a culture as it is a religion. You know, we were an Irish Catholic family. We were not a pious family or a religious family. We went to Catholic school. We went to Mass on Sunday. We didn't eat meat on Friday. We gave up candy for Lent. You know, so we... But what we were... What was instilled in us, what made the faith so... mesh so well, is that the Catholic social doctrine that we were taught at school with the nuns meshed with my family's values. My father, the man of little words said that the greatest sin of all was the abuse of power. And we know, especially women, the first thing they think about is, if, I don't know, one of the, the abuse of power is, you know, physical. But we all know there's, there's abuse of power is psychological, it's emotional, it's financial. It's more than just physical. And my dad said it takes a small man to hit a woman or a child. And it... Uh, and... He hated bullies, and specifically, my brother Joe, the great orator, <laughs> uh, I don't know if, when he was a little kid, he, he could not string more than three words together. He was a terrible stutterer. And people, adults, as well as children, made fun of him. And the assumption was when you, you, you can't, that you're stupid. You can't you study, you're stupid. And my mom said to him, no, Joey, you're not stupid. It's that your brain works so fast you can't get the words out fast enough. No, you're a really smart little boy. So my brother knows, which I think makes him such a good leader, my brother knows what it feels like to be humiliated, to be made fun of, to be the other. But you know what? I bet every one of you do. But you remember that girl in high school or that guy. And when you think about it, at least for me, the bile is still, I can feel the bile in the back of my throat. I, re- I remember her, you know? And you have a choice. You can become a bully yourself, or you can realize that we're all in this together and do the right thing. So Joe chose not to be a bully. My dad said that's the greatest sin of all. And what we did in our faith, in our Catholic religion, it wasn't something that we just went, as I said, we, that we went to Mass on Sunday. But it was part of the same social doctrine and that, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. We are our brother's keeper. And again, not, you know, giving up my, you know, we are our brother's keeper. I still want a pretty car and a nice house. You know, it's not grander than just being kind and empathetic to the best that sometimes you sometimes you're better at it than others but we are our brothers we are our brothers keeper just to finish off the trifecta responsibility the third part of the biden way how is that different from faith and family and the values you've just described what What's well, well responsibility? And with faith, the Catholic Church is forgiven. There, you know, there are sins of omission, which are great as which are as great as sins of commission. So, responsibility is if you see something that um, it's like the same. What is it? And the, if you see something, say something. But, but if you see abuse, and if you see injustice, if you see inequality, it's not enough to say oh and turn your head. You have to step up to the plate. At least my parents told us, not you. You do what you, you know, again, I'm not preaching. But we were told if you, if you saw it, you were supposed to do something about it, not just turn your head. And, and again, that's the Catholic sin of omission, oh, as, which is the gravest commission. Did that answer that question? Absolutely. I want to get an A. You say it's a Catholic score girl. Yeah. I mean, did I answer the question, sister? And you are clearly a former social studies teacher. Yeah. From which you transitioned to campaign manager at age 26. What was that like, and what convinced you to do that? Joe 
And he just, I said, I, I don't know how to be a campaign. He said, sure you do. He said, you know, campaigns are just, we went, had run for county council. And he said, it's the same as running for county council or the bigger circles, you know, the people who work for you. And um, I just, had I known, it's a, it, here's one of my favorite sayings that I think I made up myself, but I don't know. It's a, um, sometimes, you, you know, it's a good thing that you, you, you don't know what you don't know. Because I didn't know what the world of 1972 women in politics in the big leagues meant. I didn't know that all the pundits were men and that those pundits thought that no woman should be in that circle or should be in that game. And my brother said I could do it, so I did it. Uh, But had I known the hostile environment, uh, I probably would have been afraid to do it. And so you have to, now looking back, I could say, well, I took a great risk, and I reached. I didn't. My brother said, come on, let's go, and I, and I did it. But there's a, there's a lot, the more information you have and the more successful you have, the greater the risk is for you. So I was fortunate enough to be not that smart, not that high up, and not realize there was a greater risk, and and just did it. And I knew I was doing... It was not just me. It was my brother Jimmy Biden was the finance chair at 23. My brother Frankie Biden was a volunteer coordinator. Everybody thought my dad was the candidate. He was 63 and he looked the part. <laughs> and, and mom was the coffee chair. I mean, we, I, I'm not kidding when I said we had no power. We had no influence. We had no money. And there was no structured Democratic Party in the state of Delaware at the time. But what we had was vision and energy and the best candidate. And in 1972, there was really a combustible energy between youth and the issues. And the reason that we ran in 1972 to end the war in Vietnam for civil rights and to save planet Earth. We were one of the first campaigns in the country to ever talk about the environment. And that's why we ran. And, you know, if you don't, if, what is it, Cicero or Plato, one of them said, you know, if, if you don't get in the game, I'm paraphrasing, because, you know, we're like that, Cicero and Plato and I. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you don't get in the game and if you don't stand up, then you're going to be, your, your world will be governed by people less than you. So you have to take a chance. You have to risk. And again, it was easier at 26 to risk than it probably was at 56 for me to risk. But uh, I did it. I want to come back to that 72 campaign, but I do see a gentleman flashing question cards here, and I want to remind everybody, please send us your questions. We'd love to have some questions from you. And I'll hang around afterwards, too, with books if you have any questions. So you have said that that 72 campaign was your favorite campaign. It was called the Children's Crusade. That's what the press called us, yeah. So was that just because the candidate was young? Were there young people involved in that campaign? It was because uh, I was a high school teacher at Wilmington Friends, which was a private, wealthy, Republican, enclave, Quaker school. Uh, All the teachers were there were probably Democrats or leaning towards Democrats, but the entire student body, uh, parents. And these parents would have sooner voted for Mickey Mouse than for a Democrat. So it was, they're the kids I taught. So uh, I would be fired for this now, but I jokingly said to my kids, my class, um, if you don't work for my brother, I'll flunk you. And they thought, isn't that, isn't Miss Biden funny? Isn't that cute? Uh, But uh, I I said that uh, Joe came in to speak to the student body, which was all of 250 kids or some, some number. It's in the book. I don't remember exactly now. And they were intrigued because in 1972, they, they had skin in the game. It's the first year that 18 year olds could vote. And they all had brothers and sisters who were in college campuses, you know, the, from the Kent States and on that were revolting and, and having campus riots. And everybody was going to Vietnam. I'm, you know, that was, that was there. 
So these, I said, look, you can learn about in all seriousness. I said, you can learn about social studies in the classroom here, or you can experience it and, you know, come with me. And our students, my students, you know, made the logo. They made all the hand, we didn't, again, we didn't have any money. So they would come after practice and all of our signs were handmade posters with, you know, that somebody would be stapling the wooden stick on it. And those signs that we watched in a parade as opposed to the fancy posters were like, they were different. I mean, they, people said, there's something to this. And Nelia was an eighth grade teacher, Joe's late wife. And uh, uh, it was those kids, those eighth graders got their parents to, because of Mrs. Biden, and they got their parents to drive them uh, and, and to distribute our wheat literature. And the press called us the Children's Crusade, and we had our own Biden post office. We had no money for stamps, and we had no money for fancy pamphlets. So we, you know those rag newspapers like the Screamers, the Daily News? Well, we, the weekend, I'll finish this. In, the weekend before Labor Day, and that's in the old days, 72, that's when the campaign really went into gear, only those six weeks, Labor Day to Election Day. So the weekend before Labor Day, we had $7,000 left. And the good government groups, which like Joe, said he's a, he's a good young man and never going to win. But, you know, you, we ran against, this is Nixon landslide here, against George McGovern. Our opponent had twice governor, three times House, and was running for his third time as United States senator. The president, Nixon, came in and anointed him in August and, you know, to run our, our opponent. And our opponent made the big mistake of they thought we were a gnat. They never even acknowledged us. It was the Rose Garden strategy. You know, don't acknowledge a contender to the throne because they're nobodies. So we snuck up on them. Anyway, the Labor Day weekend, we ran a poll. We had a 16 po- 16% recognition factor in the state and a, 17 point, a 17% uh, approval rating because that one uh, point was for that we were a Democrat. They didn't know who we were. We won, six weeks later, 3,163 votes. And it was because every weekend, the next six weeks, those high school kids, and remember Frankie now is, is doing volunteer, getting kids to the youngest brother, those high school kids and Neelia's eighth grade kids' parents, they got up at 6 o'clock in the morning and we hand-delivered 150,000 pieces of literature throughout the state every Saturday to Election Day. And at the end, people were waiting outside their door, like, where's my paper? You know, or calling headquarters. I didn't get my paper. The kids would deliver the paper, play their football game at 10 o'clock, and then go back and deliver the rest. And these Republican parents, this is my theory, which is what I absolutely, of course, labor helped us and, and good government. And, but the, these parents who said, oh, my God, Susie would not, would no more get out of bed before 12 o'clock on a Saturday than fly, which is normal for high school kids. To see their kid, Susie or Johnny, get up at 5.30 to be at the drop-off place at 6 o'clock to hand deliver these papers, they said, you know what? I better, took a, I better take another look at this guy. Because we parents think we influence our children, and we do. But our children influence us. And, and if your child does that, say, you know, there's got to be something to him. I'm going to take another look. And I think, I think it's those parents, the reason that, that we won, also with the help of God and the goodwill of the neighbors and all those novenas to St. Jude. But maybe... <laughs> So 50 years later, you're the chair of the Biden Institute. You're oh, see, I think your math is probably wrong. You're, you're, you, you are working with young people again. Yeah. What are you doing with them, and how are you helping them to be the, the, the cliche of helping young leaders, but um, what we want to do at the Biden School, the, the Biden Institute and the Biden School of Public Policy is have a place to convene, to bring the divergent groups, the best minds in policy and in public advocacy. The Biden Institute is different from the 
halls of the building, academia, where you, where you learn the policy. Ours is the practice of politics. And you can't get any place unless you have civility and civil discourse. And so we're trying, uh, that's our goal, and to, and to bring people that, gosh, that, that never would be exposed. Look, my father said, Joe and I, all of us went to public, uh, Catholic school, but then the University of Delaware. And to have the students at the University of Delaware, ordinary kids, middle-class kids like me and Joe. I, by the way, I couldn't, my, when I enrolled, I went to Ursuline Academy for Young Girls in high school. And I wanted to, my classmates uh, all were going all again. The majority of them going what we call the Catholic Ivies. For the boys, they went to the Holy Cross, the Georgetown, the Notre Dames. For the girls, it was Manhattanville, Marymount College, Newtonville. I was going to the University of Delaware because my parents couldn't afford it. And besides that, I couldn't wait to get out of an all-girls school. I thought, 5,000 co-ed, I am there, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm there. But uh, the biggest thing about college was um, f- living, the, 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 the campus experience. And my dad, good, good man, but was not and financially was not able to afford for me to go to, Joey was already there, but for me for room and board. And he said, honey, and he was a car salesman. So he tried to bribe me, and I don't mean, and it was dad's, he was trying to do the right thing. He could buy a car because he sold them, so he could get a car that I could drive back and forth more than he could afford for the tuition. And Joe and I worked in the summer, so it wasn't like, you know, we were waiting to get, you know, I'm getting my nails done, and where's my tuition money? So uh, I, I, Dad said, I can't go. And another story is that my brother, c- c- several weeks later, said, Come on, Bow, let's have a family meeting with Mom and Dad this time. And he said, my, uh, he said I'm not, Dad, I'm not going to go back to school this year. I'm going to take this year off. He was a junior. And again, to save my f- to say with dignity, because my, he didn't want to take my father's dignity that he couldn't do this to send us both. And he said, I'm not going to go. Send Val. She's a better student, and she deserves it, and send her, let her go. And uh, my father's a champa. You know, we can't do that. Somehow, by the end of September, at uh, the end of August, I don't know how, my father got a loan, and Joe was able to go back and... I was able to go. But my first roommate, when, you know, you exchange letters and, you know, I'm going to be your roommate, my roommate was a, 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 senior, a sophomore because all freshmen had been assigned. And she wrote back to me, I, you know, where she was from. I wrote back to her. I said I went to Ursuline Academy and I'm now coming. She wrote back and she said, I'm sorry, I can't room with you. My parents won't let me room with the Catholic. That's 1972. So Delaware was really progressive, you know. Um, but I don't know how I got on to that because I think it was a different question you asked me. You see, Joe trained me, you know. <laughs> you can tell I'm his sister, you know. Ask me this and I'm over there, you know. So I have some great questions from our audience here. And I'm going to combine a couple of them which have to do with advice to women. For women who still struggle to find their voice and power in a room full of men, what advice do you have? What advice do you have for women, young ladies, to move into positions of power, moving up the ladder, especially women of color? Okay, easy thing to say, but confidence is the number one prerequisite for success in life, period, I believe. And I think you have to, uh, it's what is this Patrick Owens leadership seminar it's how you, you, you have to present yourself. And what I do in, in, in teaching is uh, for women, how do, how do you act? What most women, when you go in and I'm walking up and I'm introducing, you're a woman, you're a woman. So I got it. And I say, hello, how are you? I'm, uh, well, no, you're, I can't, can't be, I must be respectful to you. Uh, hi, I'm Valerie Biden. How are you? Very well, thank you. Get off your ass. Uh-huh. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know why? Now we're equal. Yes, I 
Yeah, you're sitting there. You sit back down. When I say I'm interested, and it's like, Pat, 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 how are you? But if you stand up, we're already unequal. And you shake. You know, it's not this fish hand. You know, you, you, know, you shake hands. And you, so you got to fake it. You know, you have to pretend that you, and I, was, I didn't mean to say, cut off your ass, it just came out. But, um, but I do it in a more refined, and God, we're being recorded. So um, I do it in a more refined way. But there are certain things that you, that you practice, and you got to learn techniques and, and confidence. Everybody thinks you're not born. It's not in your DNA. Sometimes, you know, you think you have it, and then, I mean, it's happened to me. How many times when you, you're confident people, but you stand up and you've got it, and you can just then all of a sudden, like, oh, my God, you can feel a drain right out of you. Like, what do you, I mean, how many of you have been there? Like, I've, lo- I've lost, and you've just, you, so you get techniques that, uh, so I just call my brother. It's my technique. <laughs> what do I do? Pretty good brother to call. Um, What's the most challenging thing you've experienced on the campaign trail? On a campaign trail? Um, not having, not biting my tongue so severely that I have to have it resevered. I mean, uh, resown. Mm-hmm. People say, because my brother's in public office, they, you can't imagine the things that, the good and the bad. And they can, so what, I've gotten myself into uh, some trouble, actually. There's several stories about that, too. But a couple of them are in the book. But if we're, if Joe and I are here, Joe's at that end of the room, and I'm here, and we're campaigning, and some big, brave man and his wife come, uh, this happened, come up and say to me, and lay into me about Joe, you know, what he's, no bad stuff, you know, whatever that they don't like about him. So I looked at the woman, and I said, you must be so proud of him, your husband. And I said, you know, he's so strong that he, my brother's standing over there, but he comes to his sister, and he says that. So why don't you just go tell my brother? He's right there. <laughs> but you must be so proud of his courage that he comes in, you know, he kicks this one. So I'm not always real good. <laughs> you shared some poignant sayings that your mom and dad instilled in you. Are there ones you have that you have encouraged your children, your children, to live by? Uh, yeah, that there's uh, every, well, they're, they're really moms that have stuck with me, which is every life is an incredible act of bravery. I mean, actually, that wasn't moms. That was, I, I watched a, every life's an incredible act of bravery. And, um, and again, without being, it's not religious or it's spirit. There's, you know, there's that of God in every man. That's the, the Quaker. And uh, you have to, yeah. If I understood the, and appreciated that every life was an incredible act of bravery, I would have so much more empathy. I don't know what it is, and you are acting like such a, a jerk, but I don't know whether you just found out that you're, someone in your family overdosed, somebody has cancer, your husband, you're going to divorce? I don't know that. I know you're acting like a jerk. So it doesn't mean I'm not that good to step back and, you know, turn the other cheek like Christ. But for the moment, what, one of the things that we learned, we were taught, is that in the Biden family, is that words are weapons. And never say anything that you can't take back. That doesn't mean you don't have a backbone of steel. And that doesn't mean that you don't stand up and say, oh, no, never again. Don't do that. But it means that what we did, our parents, that we would walk away at that moment and come back in an hour or the next day and address it, not to put it under, but words are weapons. And that's, one of, that's what I tell my children, Jack and I. Jack said, Valerie, I'm part of this. They are our children, <laughs> you know, or two of us, but that's one of them. Back to uh, politics and young people. 
What advice do you have for young people who want to enter politics today? Um, I guess three things. First of all, uh, know why you're running. Uh, sounds, it sounds uh, simplistic. Uh, but know what it is worth losing over. That's, that goes with why are you running and what is it worth losing over. And the other one is to, uh, the three, the other one would be to get your personal life in order. Now, I don't mean CIA, you know, going through your, your garbage looking for your tax records. I mean your personal life. Being in politics is a rough and tumble business. And you're out and you're, you've got incoming all day long out in the field. So when you come home, your partner, your spouse, your aged parents, your young children, you, that's got to be a safe haven. So you can't, if your spouse is not, that's the easiest example. If you're, from my case, if my husband weren't there with me and backing me, and I get in at 10 o'clock because I've been wherever I've been at with rallies and doing, he says, oh, oh, glad to see you can make it, pal. Mm-hmm. 10 o'clock, I mean... It's okay. I mean, I gave the kids dinner, and I gave them all the bath, and I gave their homework, but I hope you had a nice day. I mean, you don't need that. So that's, you, you, you got to have your personal life in order. Or if you've got older parents that, or parents, now whether they're old or not, that, you know, they're used to talking to you every day, and now you're only calling them like again Thursday. Uh, that's okay. I'm your mother. I mean, uh, I haven't heard from you in three days, but, you know, I'm only your mother. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those kinds of things. So, and then the third thing is, listen to your gut. That doesn't mean that you don't surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are in the areas that you're not so smart. And you get as much information as you can. But in the end, it's your campaign, it's you, it's who you are. And so listen to your gut. So they're my three profound words of wisdom, <laughs> Looking back over this long stretch of engagement and leadership in politics and national life, of all your achievements, of what are you the most proud? My three children. They have raised us well. Uh, they, they have. They've been so good to me and Jack. And so I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of the family at large. And I'm proud that, uh, proud is a bad word. I'm grateful that I have my three brothers. My brother, Jimmy Biden, is his best friend is Joe and Frankie. And, you know, it's, my brothers have been a gift. And, um, and they say the same. And, the, and again, with that, there's heartbreak. You know, there's tragedy in every family. But and people say, God, your family's gone through so many ups and downs, so much tragedy. But you know what? So have you. I don't know what it is, but I know that you have too. So it's like, Dad, you know, get back up and keep moving forward. The Pope, I, well, I guess we're going to end, but the Pope came to um, Washington, our current Pope, Francis, the Jesuit Pope, Francis, uh, <laughs> Uh, and he came to Washington uh, in the, I guess it was August or September. Uh, and Bo, Joe's eldest, our collective child, had died in May 30th. And the Pope, all the, we were, he had a mass, and there were so many seats outside because everybody couldn't fit in the, the cathedral. And there's big jumbo screens. And the, Pope, his sermon was being projected onto the screen. And the essence of his sermon was, keep moving forward. And I remember sitting with, I was here, my daughter Casey was next to me, and my brother Joe was next to her. And I promise you, my Biden word of honor, I was positive that the Pope was speaking directly to us. Keep moving forward. That's the joy. That's the magic. What I am most grateful for is the magic of family and the magic of growing up Biden.
I think that serves us well as a final thought. Thank you. Our thanks to you, Valerie Biden-Owens, for an uplifting series of thoughts tonight. I want to thank everyone who joined us here at USF and online as well for this joint USF Commonwealth Club program. Such a pleasure to be thank with you. Thank you. You're a gracious uh, hostess and commentator. You kind of made me look good a few places. I like that. <laughs> Can I take you back with me? Sebastian, you know? I'm Gloria Duffy uh, from the Commonwealth Club. This USF Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank really you. Really love my pleasure. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.